A Café con Emoción. My name is Rebecca Castellam. My name is Gina Villarraga. I'm Xiomara Romero. And I'm Paloma Vargas. We are a group of mental health providers creating a space to magnify the voices of Nuestra Gente, the Latinx community in Orange County, California, highlighting social, emotional, political, and economic barriers while bridging the gap of access to holistic approaches in mental health. Café con Emoción as a public service is neither legal or mental health service or advice. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation. Guests on the podcast have the right to express their own individual views in Café con Emoción, and members do not imply endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Hi, and thank you for tuning in. We are really excited to have this opportunity to create this podcast. We started this podcast in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and despite all the barriers that the pandemic has posed, we have chosen to persevere and continue advocating for our community here in Orange County, California. For the next four episodes, we would like to introduce who we are and why we are doing this by sharing each of our stories. We believe that in sharing our stories, we are healing our ancestors and utilizing our voices to project the stories of those who are unheard. You'll also get to find out more about your host and where we come from. We are kicking off this series with Xiomara Romero LMFT Story, which highlights resiliency and the importance of positive role models in our community. So grab your cafecito and get ready to join us. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Café con Emoción. Today, we have Xiomara Romero telling us her bio and her story. Hello, my name is Xiomara Romero. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and I have worked in both the private and public sectors. Currently, I am in private practice in Costa Mesa, California. I provide individual and family counseling with areas of focus on grief and loss, young adulthood, trauma, psycho-oncology, and working professionals navigating through micro and macro aggressions in the workplace. I'm trained in multicultural counseling and treat mental health problems in connection to the systemic challenges, oppression, power imbalances, and social political influences. I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and lived across several places in US, such as New York, Los Angeles, and San Diego. Our family moved around a lot in search for a better environment. I have now spent most of my time here in Orange County, California, but very connected to all the different places that were once called home. Because we moved around a lot, the idea of home was not the physical structures or belongings that filled that structure, but it was represented by those present in our lives, which included my parents and my older sister, since most of our relatives were in Colombia. Our family built a strong bond. It became unbreakable, navigating through different environments, cultures, and homes. As a kid, I learned to love school, excel in any way as possible, compartmentalizing the trauma we had experienced being immigrants, and also navigating my own depression by finding my own ways of healing due to not having access to mental health services and around the stigma of seeking help. I will be sharing with you a story of experiences that have challenged my Latinx identity. 
It was fourth grade picture day. I had my long curly wild hair and ready for the day. I walked over to my friend's house as her mother would take us to school while my parents would sometimes go to work early in the morning. My friend's mom opened the door asking me if I was ready for a picture day, suggesting that my mom had forgotten. She rushed back in, soon came out with one of my friend's shirts and said, here, sweetie, let me fix your hair and you and Susie can match. I was confused, but did not have the words to explain that I felt just fine the way I looked. In moments, she had straightened out my curls, fluffed out my bangs, and had turned me into an image of beautiful, similar to her white daughter. I really hated those pictures. And every time I looked at them, I could hear my uncle's words saying, Mijita, you're beautiful as you are and don't ever alter the way you look. That was my first experience of feeling I was not enough because I did not look white. I chose this experience because it represents a common feeling that most indigenous, black, Latinx, and people of color can experience by feeling their differences make them less than, and if not less than, they are sometimes exoticized. It also highlights the one of many experiences of racism and internal pain that causes the loss of words. This was just one of my multiple experiences that would challenge my Latinx identity and allow me to construct what it meant to be bicultural, learning to navigate between my roots, cultural identity, my environment, and interactions with the dominant culture. I am so excited to be here and share a narrative and those of our gente in Orange County, California. I'm honored to be sharing the space with delicious cafecito with these beautiful ladies and the amazing guests we have planned to be on this podcast. Thank you. And I look forward to our journey of this podcast, Café con Emoción. Thank you, Xiomara, for sharing your story with us and and just the beauty of finding your own and your own healing with mental health as well. I uh, wanted to, to kick off our discussion and our response to your bio because, um, you know, I've heard your story a couple of times, but I, I was really moved right now with um, your uncle, with your uncle and, and his comment to you in Colombia and, and telling you not not to change you. And, um, you know, I think that really, we don't hear too many of, of, of a male figure of a positive male figure, right? Mm -hmm. A positive male figure was such a positive message to you as a child. And I'm, I'm wondering, thinking back now, maybe a little bit of relationship about with your uncle, but also like, where do you think that came from? You know, those were his last words kind of um, as we were getting ready to leave, to come to the United States. Um, and I think for him, it was seeing like, we're probably not going to see them, you know, we're, we're, we're probably going to see them, you know, in a really long time. For him, it was more of like, don't lose your identity, don't lose your roots, mm -hmm. don't lose who you are, right? Um, so that that comment always stayed with me. It was something that um, I think was really important. Like you said, hearing it from a male figure. Mm -hmm. um, 
and at that time, my father didn't immigrate with us. So, um, so he was kind of that, you know, that, that, that positive voice. Um, and, you know, and kind of thinking back about what that comment, it signified so much more, but he was really talking about eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, Latinas in the eyebrows. Come on now. <laughs> These Very puppies important. are important. Yes. <laughs> yes. And to him, it was like, don't, you know, don't mess up your eyebrows. Don't, you know, that represents. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> but later on, you know, that it represented so much more about like, don't lose your roots. Don't lose who you are. Um, but yeah, come to think of it. Thank <laughs> for reminding me about that. That's neat. Yeah, I, I, it's a funny because I heard that right now and it was like, yeah, your, your uncle had such a positive influence on you, that positive male role model. And it makes me think because so many studies show um, correlation between girls growing up and positive relationships with their father or a positive male role model and, and being confident and dependent females as they're as as they grow up to be women so it's it's just kind of neat to to make that link in that correlation yeah absolutely and and how important you know how important it is in our community to break those that silence from the male telling their daughters like you're beautiful I love you right yeah sometimes those words aren't heard from you know the father figure or the uncles right the Sometimes the machismo really gets in the way of really voicing those important messages and so important for young ladies to hear that, you know, from those people that really care for them and yeah, really strengthen that part. True. I'm going to circle back to the eyebrows, if that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm circling back to the eyebrows because I think in, in listening to your story, I, I, it highlights I, the theme of identity a lot and growth in our journey. And um, I think in our, in our Latinx culture, hair plays a big role in our identity. And that day, that story that you shared, your hair was altered. And that, that took place in a form of identity is, is what I'm, I'm listening to it as. I'm wondering, what do you think you needed to hear that day? What would have made a difference if, if someone said something to you to comfort you? What would you have liked to, to hear that day? Yeah, thank you, Rebecca, for making that connection about hair um, and, and what I experienced that day. I think I would have liked to um, just feel empowered to have like voiced what I was feeling, right? To like say stop or <laughs> no, I don't want that ugly shirt or... <laughs> Yeah, I don't want my hair different. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm fine as I am, you know, really have um, the words and, and maybe that's asking too much of a nine year old. Because I, I think about the times that even as adults, you know, we come across, um, you know, I call them like jabs, when when you hear something that really you lose that the words that you would like to say, and, you know, um, maybe it's like a racist comment or someone says something um, that was very inappropriate and you want to say something, but 
it was like a low blow. So you, you don't have the words. So, I mean, I get when that happens and, um, and, and sometimes, you know, I have been able to kind of overcome that feeling and, and still speak up and, and voice it. Um, but as a child, I guess just to feel that it was okay to do it and, and it was okay to not do it too, right. To, because of the obvious power dynamic. Mm-hmm. I like how you say the jab, like, cause it, it feels like an emotional jab, mm-hmm. right. When it's like, wait, I don't, I don't want that. Like you can't, you don't have the words to say no. Right. right? And it feels like right in the gut and how you address it that you're a child, we still feel those jabs, but you just, you have even less words or expression of that, but you just know it doesn't, it doesn't fit. It's not well, it's not good. You don't want it. I just feel like that's such an important thing to point out that as children and as adults, we feel that maybe it's a family member saying something that you're like, oh, why did they say that? Or gosh, that didn't make me feel good that it's that emotional jab or, or somebody says something a culturally insensitive thing at work or something like that, that it's, it's a jab. Right. Right. And you don't know what to do. So yeah. Thank you for labeling that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That actually brings a question that, you know, Latino, Latino parents, how, Latinx parents, how can we normalize um, speaking up for ourselves at a young age? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so important to do that. Right. And I think, the main thing, so normalizing would be first really being attuned with our kids, right? That we are their voice in the beginning. And then when they're seeing their parents kind of speak up for them, that they get the strength through us to be able to say, I can speak up, right? And then there's the other side, you know, not normalizing certain things that are just a cultural thing, right? You know, silencing their emotions. Um, you know, we've often talked about like hugging and things like that, that if if the child doesn't want to, that's also giving voice to that, to say you don't have to hug or you don't have to sit on someone's lap. So to normalize would be to really advocate for them and then to also hear them out, be in tune with them and not normalize things that, seen as cultural, but um, it's uncomfortable for a child. Given, given a child okay to say no. Yeah. Like that comes across so many different levels, right? From like, abuelitas wanting you to eat something, pero no tienes hambre. Like you just, no, thank you. I love you, abuelita, but mm-hmm. I just don't want it. You know, just something so simple as that to mm-hmm. obviously the the touching or the hugging and, and something more complex, but just just being okay to say no. I, I don't, I don't want it. <laughs> yeah. And that could be a hard thing for mm-hmm. children, um, especially in, in our culture where, yes, you know, you have to greet so you're not rude or um, you have to hug and kiss. And so teaching our children to have that individuality and to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that balance between like, this is my boundary or this is my space. And, and then also just like polite. like some etiquette (laughs) Um, yes and then also teaching them the part about you know because that one's really hard I think about my extended family and very touchy very hugs and and squeezing and kisses and um and 
for someone who doesn't maybe you know if a child doesn't welcome that it's that's hard to to really um create that boundary right so that's a really tough one i mean i think we we can give the tools but um it also comes to maybe stepping in a little bit more to break those patterns right because a child really can't do that you know mm-hmm. can't if if the aunt or uncle or whoever it is grandma or grandpa just you know grab them and squeeze them and and it's about reading their body language too mm-hmm. because um maybe they're loving it you know and and they're really <laughs> they're okay with that at that time yeah right mm-hmm. they're wanting that affection and and they understand that their family just wants to give them as much love as they can right so it's about maybe really reading you know learning to read and attune to your child and understand their body language as well that's true too i like how you make that point because it could also be that they're okay with that hug and that you know how do you say it it's that word i love that word I don't know. That's what we say in my house. Like, like you just snuggle them up and squeeze mm-hmm. them. So, yeah. um, I think in Mexico. Yes. Loma and I are looking at each other like, like what? Yeah. I don't know if that's just in my house or is that a color? I don't know. But like, that's what we say. Like, I had a question, Simara, too. About just uh, how did you make the decision to to become a therapist and come to that path, and what what kind of led you to that, in that direction? So, I was always a curious child. Um, always liked to observe. I was always a big observer, um, and so that's always kind of been my nature. Um, you know, why this? Why that? Why, why does mm. someone, you know, it was kind of like the, the, the one always asking my mom everything, asking the questions and, and why does this person do this and why that, right? Trying to make sense of it all. I also had a big role model. One of my uncles passed away a couple of years ago, um, another uncle. Um, he, he did a lot of, he was a well-known psychologist and he worked at a university and he did a lot with treatment centers in Colombia and published books. So I really admired him and, and I like, I loved hearing um, kind of his work. And, um, you know, I remember getting his book when he first published it and it was just neat to have that role model. I, always knew like I wanted to do something in psychology. I majored in psychology. I sought myself as kind of a good listener with friends and, you know, in my own family system as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're always therapists in our families first, and then we become therapists, right? <laughs> so true. <laughs> yeah, I just always kind of knew I wanted to go in that direction and um, just learn more about me and learn about uh, family and culture and um that's always, you know, been something that I've wanted to do. And, and, and I'm very fortunate that I kind of followed that path and uh, continued that path. And I really think that that actually gave you the tools to go into that field. Um, so I guess my question is, how do you, you mention in your story, um, 
that you navigated your own mental health when you were younger. How, how did you do that? Now I, I'm kind of connecting that you already had those tools because of your family. You already had that uh, generation of uh, being psychologists and therapists. And how do you navigate your own mental health when you were growing up? I think that, you know, as an immigrant, it was, you know, and I never really connected it to the generational you know, having some of those skills from my uncle and things like that. I think from life experiences, like the resiliency in our family unit, you know, I talked about us um, kind of sticking together and, and really strengthening that family unit and whatever came our way, we overcame it. There was always a solution to problems. And I think I grew up knowing that, that if there was a problem, there was going to be a solution. So even if no matter how big that problem was, and, you know, we went through some really big injustices, we went, you know, experienced some really big traumas, um, you know, undocumented for many years, you know, just kind of looking, looking for that, that better environment. So even moving, I think, gave a lot of tools as far as like, we didn't have that stability growing up, but we made the best of it. And, you know, we became very versed in, uh, being able to be relatable and across many different cultures and adaptable, you know, being okay with saying goodbye to friends and then hello again. I think that communication in the household was really good with, with our mom. Um, we had that very strong figure. I mean, our, our mom was uh, kind of that, that very figure in our life. So I mean, and my father as well later on, but um, early on, it was more my mom. So I think the tools came, you know, they, they I think, modeled by parents and, um, and experiences, you know. But I think the bigger one was just knowing that there were solutions, always, you know, not being stuck in hopelessness or, um, and, you know, that translated in just kind of, I talked about just being very involved in school and, and liking school. So that, that was how I coped, you know, with my depression in, in uh, adolescence. And that was, I became a nerd and I loved it. I joined the yearbook. Yeah, <laughs> I was yearbook okay. editor. <laughs> yeah. I played soccer. I was captain of the um, soccer, you know, JV team. I joined clubs. I, um, and I'm naturally an introvert. But that was what was getting me through whatever the obstacles were. And it was the focus and it was, you know, there's solutions, there's, um, there's projects, there's ideas, there's creativity, the movement, the movement. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, that's what I hear. I hear in your story too, Sumata, a lot of just, you keep trudging. Right, which is I think the story of so many of us and and you just keep you gotta keep going. And I joke around a lot with like the hustle, you know, like Lat Latinx, mm -hmm. we're the best with the hustle, man. Mm -hmm. But I think there's some healing in that hustling, right? To to keep moving forward. And um and I think also just the story of the immigrant, any immigrant from any anywhere, you know, to, to come to the States and 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 have a hustle because you got to really move, move through it. Also hearing how you were able to move through it by just, just kind of getting into your zone with school and excelling and high performance, which, you know, there's a, there's the good and the bad to that, right? Mm -hmm. There's the good and the bad. The good is that it's helpful in life. 
to have that drive. But if you don't ever go back and process your own healing, it, it can get you into some trouble too. Right. If you stay in that high functioning, you know, past adolescence and you start entering that into adulthood where you're burning out, where you're mm -hmm. not getting the rest that your body needs or your mind needs, um, where, you know, you're over functioning so much that the issues are just being pushed aside, pushed not being processed. So I think it was what I needed in adolescence and, and probably young adulthood. Luckily, you know, I, I was able to, you know, get my own therapy and, um, you know, do a lot of that self-healing and understanding, you know, that that was my coping mechanism back then, but it didn't have to mm. be how I coped as an adult. Yeah, I love that you say that. That That's important to say, because I think too, we think that it has to be high functioning all the time, right? Like excel, excel, excel. Mm -hmm. And to be able to be like, you know, my, my body, my health, I'm, I don't have to do that. Absolutely. It's different. Yeah. To learn what self-care is, to learn yeah. what balance is, to, um, yeah, be able to be present, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. That often when we're so busy, we can't do. Right. And it feels uncomfortable. No, that's, that's good. You were such a striver as, as a teen, you know, you really strive to be in all those clubs and sports and stuff and, and really kind of keep searching. And that, that's such a, so such a powerful quality to have. And I'm thinking as an adult, realizing that you don't have to be such a high achiever, that you're still okay, that, you know, who you are, what would you have, what would you tell yourself going back to that adolescent self? I think the other side, the the emotional part, right? The mm. the part that was being neglected, right? So um, that it was okay to feel sad, that it was okay to feel um, whatever it was that yeah. I was feeling at that time. So maybe just more focus, more focus mm. on that piece and the normalizing that you could still be really active and you could still be loving all the projects that you're doing, but you can also be really sad and you could still be experiencing depression, right? So more voice to that. That's just the normal part, not only as adolescents because of all the hormones and, you know, <laughs> the changes in the body and uh, just that, that stage of life that you're making those friendships, you're making sense of the world. You, you're trying to really find your place in the world. So that, it's okay that it was okay to, to let those emotions out and to show those emotions. And so true. Yeah. I guess to really give uh, space to that part of the mental health. And the emotional side. I think, mm -hmm. I think that's a really good point because sometimes when, when we're high achievers and anybody, but, but it's usually to kind of compensate, right? You compensate a little bit for that uh, emotional piece to kind of strive and do good because that feels good. And you have a lot of accolades because of that. So to pay attention to that emotional side and, and normalize it, like you said. It's yeah. So and, important. Yeah. And I think in, in our families, in our, you know, our Latinx families, um, a lot of the times most moms could recognize when their children aren't, you know, feeling, you know, if they're feeling a certain way or something's off, right. But 
to be able to have the tools and to be able to, um, I guess, connect and, and, and be able to talk about it. You know, maybe it's not sending them off to therapy right away, but to really to notice the change, to talk about the change, to find out and, and listen. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, I think that's hard to do as a parent to be able to not step on your child's toes or, you know, you know, we often talk about the rebellion also in adolescence, right? So there's this like pull with parents and and this push and, but to be able to kind of break away from the the silences or, or to, for the parent, right? For parents to also get okay with holding a little bit of the emotional space for the kids. So in order to do that, we, as parents, parents have to be okay with their own emotional space. Yes. You know, we, we kind of go back to that mental health care, right? That, that, that sense of just holding that space. And, and I think as, you know, and if we think about child development, that stage in adolescence, like as a parent, you might want to ask your adolescent all these questions and they're going to be like, no, I don't want to talk about it or nothing, right. nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. And shut down and shut down. And you're like, oh, you get frustrated as a parent. But as long as you keep, you know, holding that space for hopefully one day, they're going to come and talk to you. Mm-hmm. Right. And and normalize that. And then you're kind of ready for that. So that as a parent, it's okay to ask and it's okay to to hold it and be there with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm trying to think of like, you know, what did my mom do at that time? And I'm reflecting that she had us write letters. Mm, that's great. So because we couldn't have the conversations, right? I, I was a, a you know, re- rebellious teenager. So um, I would often get agitated, right? So in adolescence, we often look at for like, depression doesn't always look like they're down and, and oversleeping or things like that. No, in adolescent, you know, they're active, they're agitated, they're acting angry, out. they're acting out, right? So um, I'm, tr- you know, I'm remembering that we couldn't really have those conversations. So um, yeah, so she would, she would just let us know that, you know, we, maybe we couldn't talk through it. But um, we had the option of looking for an alternative form of communicating and that was through letters. <laughs> so I wish I could get a hold of those letters. But um, wow. that was just, you know, how we communicated, you know, at times. I'm height. wondering if there is a, a book or some, some, some sort of information on how to communicate when your child is an introvert versus an extrovert. Oh, yeah. Like, are there, there different is. ways to you know, deal with mental health and, and approaching our kids in different ways, depending on their personality. Mm-hmm. There is, there's, there's a lot of actual research done on like introvert versus extrovert and communication and what it, what it means. And sometimes introverts get confused for being depressed, but they're not depressed. They're just introverted. They're just in their heads. They're not very verbal. But it doesn't mean they're not thinking about stuff, but that's yeah. kind of going a little bit. Well, I really like the uh, idea of just holding that space. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I, I was pretty introverted. My mom would ask me all the time, ¿Cómo estás? Are you okay? I'd be like, oh, why are you asking? <laughs> like, why 
are you asking me? Leave me alone. You don't understand. Because I'm first gen, right? So first generation, you feel like no one gets you. So I'm just like, ay, déjame en paz. But now as an adult, I know that if I need to, the, the space is there. Well, thank you, Siamara, for sharing your your story with us and and allowing us to ask some questions. And you touched a lot about just where you come from and your strengths. And I, I really want to identify that. Yeah, your resiliency and, you know, being able to manage your own mental health in the best way you could. And um, what I heard, too, is is the the positive male role models. Yeah, I don't know if you had recognized that, but that that really shined, you know, that came through. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you. Thank you for joining in and listening to Simara's story. Please stay tuned for our next Platica with Gina Villarraga, LCSW, where we're going to talk about mental health and overcoming addiction. Café, 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 café con emoción.